You may remain seated, but I'm actually going to read a few verses further in our text this morning. So if you do want to open back up to chapter 13, I'll continue at verse 43. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth." And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. This is God's word. Now, it is our missions emphasis. It's something that we do in the fall where we have missionaries from OGC uh, who are stationed around the world read the scripture passage before the service, tell you a little bit about where they are and what they're doing. That's just a way that we like to try and highlight our missionaries. But back when I used to coordinate the missions committee, one of the most difficult things for me to handle was getting Jim to commit to a text far enough in advance that I could send it to the missionaries, that they could make a video, they could read the text, they could send it back to me, and that we would schedule it and be ready to show it in service. And then by the time that Sunday came, it, it just never was quite the exact same text. It was always off by like a verse or two, and I was always complaining to Jim. So he's probably sitting feeling very vindicated at this point, as I have done the exact same thing. Uh, I did make a ninth inning uh, adjustment to the scope of the text for interpretive reasons to extend it this week. Uh, so let the ironic judgment fall on my head, not on Shelley. She read exactly what we asked her to. So the setting of our text this week is Antioch of Pisidia. This is not to be confused with the much smaller Antioch of Phrygia. I know you all would have been thinking of the latter one. This Antioch was a huge city with a population of anywhere from 100 to as many as 500,000 people, which is very large for a city back in that time. Now, that will be extremely relevant later, so you can just put a pin in it for a minute. You'll recall from last week, though, that the context of our story today is immediately following the Holy Spirit's command to set aside Paul and Barnabas for a ministry that he had called them to. Right? The believers were praying together, and the Holy Spirit said, set apart Paul and Barnabas, I'm sending them to the Gentiles. So that's what's happened. This work is commissioned directly by God himself to send these specific two men to bring his gospel to the ends of the earth. So last week, as we read, they immediately set out to Cyprus, and they preached to Jews in the synagogue. Then this week, now in Antioch, they're preaching, continuing their message of bringing the gospel to the Gentiles, they're preaching to Jews in a synagogue. It's kind of an odd way to start the ministry to the Gentiles, the preaching to Jews in a synagogue thing that they're doing. But you'll note that John Mark was with them previously, and he returned to Jerusalem after their stop in Cyprus. So maybe Paul and Barnabas were just sticking with this uh, Jewish synagogue ministry model while John Mark was there. And then as soon as he left, they would go ahead and start off their ministry to the Gentiles. So now John Mark has left. It's been another week. And so they are preaching to Jews in a synagogue. Why are they doing this? Well, I mean, the text is fairly direct in saying that it must be preached first to the Gentiles. They're following also in the example of the other apostles and of Christ when they do this by preaching to the Jew first and also the Greek, as Paul said in Romans 1.18. 
This is in line with what Peter said in Acts 3.26 um, when he said that God sent Jesus to preach the gospel to the Jews first as they were God's chosen people. And that's why you see Jesus' ministry, for example, while he's alive on earth, taking place almost exclusively in the context of Israel. But then something different happens in this context. Here in Antioch, we're going to see the first instance of Gentiles responding in large numbers to the gospel. Not just one or two, but like a really large response is happening this time. But there's an interpretive question that we need to understand, or at least we need to ask it first, before we're going to be able to situate this large-scale Gentile conversion in its proper context. If we're going to be able to understand what's happening, what's different, what's being accomplished here, we need to ask this question first. And that question is, are the Gentiles God's backup plan? Are the Gentiles God's plan B? Now, I think all of us would be probably theologically inclined to say no. We don't generally think of God as being a plan B, C, or D kind of God. But I would like to try and convince you that the Gentiles are not the plan B because I think that's what the text is trying to do for us. He wants us to see that spelled out, be very clearly certain that not only do we have theological reasons for that, we actually have historical and biblical and exegetical and complex reasons to see that. Why does this matter? Because as far as I know, we're all Gentiles. You're all Gentiles. You haven't told me otherwise anyway. And we need to know that we are not part of God's backup plan. You need to know that you're not God's plan B. You're not his consolation prize. So that's what we're going to spend our time considering. Now it's true, Exodus 19 specifically says that God chose Israel to be his treasured possession among all the peoples of the earth, and he chose them to belong to him, but he also chose them for the purpose of bringing the whole world back to him. His intent was to restore all the peoples of the earth from the fall through Israel. You can see in Isaiah 49, 6, God says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servants to raise up the tribe of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light to the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Same phrasing as our text here. It's too easy to just save Israel. Just saving Israel would not begin to do justice to the weighty glory and majesty of God's salvation in all the earth. It's too easy. It wouldn't be enough salvation to represent the God of Abraham to only save the biological children of Abraham. God said it would be too easy. So salvation was not only supposed to come to the Jews, it was supposed to come through the Jews to the rest of the world. That was always the plan. But they failed at this pretty epically and consistently. Moreover, they failed at their purpose of belonging to God as well through idolatry and chasing after false idols and false gods. And every time they would fail to meet this objective of belonging to God, God would punish them with external nations that he would bring in and they would destroy Israel. And then Israel would need saving. 
So God would raise up a prophet or a judge or a king, and that prophet, judge, or king would save Israel from that judgment that they brought upon themselves, and then they would restore them to a status of belonging to God, and as soon as he restored the status of belonging, they would begin once again to engage in the purpose of spreading to the nations. That was the cycle that you would see. And in all Israel's history, the king that they most remembered and revered for saving them from their enemies and exalting them among the nations was David. His kingship and his son Solomon's kingdom after him was unparalleled in the history of Israel for its majesty and its glory and its display of God to the nations. The nations began to take notice of it. The queen of Sheba came to Solomon to see if the things she'd heard were true. And when she got there, she said, I haven't even been told half of it. I have not known half of how glorious Israel is, and so is her God. And David knew that the nation of Israel existed as a result of God's covenant with Abraham to make Abraham into a great nation. David knew that that nation he was ruling came from the promise of God, and the promise also included, I will make you a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Back in Genesis 15, that was the promise. David's son Solomon recognized this when he dedicated the temple that he built according to his father's instruction and according to the covenant that God made with David. God said, I'm going to have your son build me a temple. So David's son did that. And on the day that he finished the temple, he prayed this prayer of dedication for the temple he built according to the covenant. He said, let these words of mine, which I have pleaded before the Lord, be near the Lord our God day and night. And may he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires that all the peoples of the earth may know the Lord is God and there is no other. That was the dedication of the temple. David and Solomon knew what was going on. David's kingdom expanded farther and Solomon's kingdom after it than any kingdom Israel had ever seen before or since. He was the king who began to bring the glory of God to the nations to expand Israel's border and to bring people into the worship of Yahweh. And God made this covenant to David that he would have an heir on the throne forever as long as he and his sons would remain faithful. But their kingdoms did not last because the sons were not faithful. The line of David did not continue to reign in Israel. And rather than conquering the nations with the worship of Yahweh, the nations conquered them with idolatry. You saw it even in Solomon's day. So, the question was raised then in the Jewish mind, starting with the exile into Assyria and the subsequent exile of Judah into Babylon. For over 500 years before the coming of Christ, every Jew was wondering the same thing. At some point in their life, they were faced with the question, have the promises of God failed? This is the very question that Paul raises in Romans 10. Have the promises of God failed? We see no king from David's line on the throne. The nations are not being brought into the worship of God. We are being conquered by the nations. It's been 500 years. Has it failed? And I believe that it is the most significant theme of the book of Acts. The entire first half is dedicated to this. The most significant theme of the book of Acts is not only telling 
that the promises of God have not failed, but showing it. You see it in all of the major sermons, like Peter in Acts 2, and his prayer in Acts 4, and Stephen's speech before he's martyred in Acts 7, here in Acts 13, later James in Acts 15, one of the leaders of the Jerusalem church, he stands up before the council in Jerusalem, and he says that this story that we're reading in our text today of the Gentiles coming in is evidence that the covenant with David that God established is being accomplished. That's how he interpreted it. He said, this coming in of the Gentiles is proof that God has not failed in his promises to David. So, rather than the Gentiles being a plan B, they are actually the distinguishing marker that God's plan A is actually being accomplished for the first time since David. It's happening. It is finally happening. The promises of God have not failed. So today we are going to consider this promise and its three intended recipients. First, the promise is made to your fathers. Secondly, the promise is made to your king. And third, the promise is made to your world. We'll start with your fathers. Now, twice in his address to the synagogue in Antioch, Paul distinguishes two groups of people that he's speaking to. He says in verse 16, men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God. Then in 26, he says, brothers, children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles. And he's careful to specify that he has both groups in mind at all times when he speaks throughout the entirety of his sermon, the message is to both of them. But in specifying this, after he speaks Specifically to the Gentiles also, he says, the God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. Speaking to both Jews and Gentiles, he said, the God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. And then after the second mention of the Gentiles, he says, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. Further down in 32, he continues, what God has promised our fathers, he has fulfilled in us, their children. He's not being subtle. It's very clear. He's saying, all of us, everyone I'm speaking to, Jews and Gentiles alike, we are all children of our fathers. And this is consistent with what Stephen, the Gentile deacon, did before he was martyred in Acts 7 when he said the glory of God appeared to our father Abraham. A Gentile opened his speech to the Sanhedrin who was about to execute him by pointing out that Abraham was his father. This is not a subtle or insignificant theme. It's consistent. You'll see it throughout the writings of Paul as well. Consider in 1 Corinthians 10, where he writes to an almost exclusively Gentile audience in the church of Corinth, and he says in verse 10, our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. And he goes on to say in 10.6 that these things happened as an example for us and they were written down for our instruction, those of us on whom the end of the age has come. So Paul is openly and blatantly saying that the exodus of Israel and the patriarch stories and the Pentateuch and the, all of the events of the Old Testament happened for our instruction. They were written down for our sake meaning both Jews and Gentiles. These things were always the plan. This is not plan B. This is evidence 
that plan A is still on track. And this is spelled out in great length in Romans 2 through 4, where Paul makes a drawn-out exegetical argument that the very structure of the text in Genesis 15 was written down by Moses specifically so that Gentiles could be included one day. That is the Moses writing the first book of the Bible, a story about Abraham, the father of all of Israel, and at the very beginning there, it was being written carefully with the right order of words in such a way that it would be clear one day that salvation was going to come to the Gentiles. Galatians 3 is where Paul summarizes this most succinctly. He says, Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham, and the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached this gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. It is very hard to be any clearer than this, but I hope you will permit me to continue to try. There's a point that we need to grasp. In 2 Samuel 7, God made a covenant with David that David's son would build him a temple, that's Solomon, and he did, that his spirit would never depart from him, and that even if he sinned, God would forgive him and not cast him off like he cast off Saul. And he promised that David's offspring would always sit on the throne. So immediately, in chapter 8, right after chapter 7, David goes out and begins subduing the nations. He takes their gold and their silver and he beats them into instruments for the temple worship in Israel. He begins expanding the borders of Israel to encompass the people around and he brings the nations into the worship of Yahweh and he tears down the idols and the high places and he institutes worship of God. So David's response to God's blessing of Israel was not to stay holed up in his capital city, it was to go out and subdue the nations because this was always the plan. And at the end of his life, in 2 Samuel 22, David reflects on God's blessings, and he says that God had made him the head of the nations, and that people he had not known had served him, so for that reason, David would praise God among the nations. The argument that Peter makes in his sermon in Acts 2, his prayer in Acts 4, that Stephen makes in Acts 7, that we're reading in Acts 13, and that you'll see in Acts 15 of the Jerusalem Council, is that these promises to David are fulfilled in Christ. But before we go there, you need to know that these promises to Abraham and David were promises that were made to your fathers. You need to know that they are your inheritance, that they are written down as examples for your instruction, for your doctrine, for your teaching, for your training in righteousness, that you might be fully equipped unto every good work, lacking in nothing. These were written for you. The promises were made to your fathers. And this is possible because they were made first to your king. So, in transitioning to our second point, I want to talk about how it can be the case that these promises belong to you rightfully just because they were made to your king. Now, if you ever hear me teach or preach or talk about theology, there should be one central point that nothing I say should ever disagree with this. This is the center of our understanding of theology. It is that the gospel is union with Christ. The gospel is union with Christ. You get Christ, he gets you. You possess Jesus, and he possesses you. 
You are united to one another. It is irreducibly simple. That is the core of the gospel. It's not only the method of the gospel, like how it happens, it's also the why of the gospel. It's both the process and the purpose. It unites everything together. It's irreducibly simple. And it's not actually true that it's easier said than done because it can happen in an instant before you even know that it's happened. Before you have words to understand or explain what has happened to you, you can be united to Christ and that through that, the Holy Spirit comes and gives you an understanding of what's already happened. It's really not overly complicated, it's just profound. So if I could simplify the gospel argument of Acts 13, it's union with Christ. How does this happen? Well, you could say it another way, because the promise to David is legitimately fulfilled in Christ, it can be legitimately applied to you. Okay, to say it another way, the relationship between David and Jesus works the same way as the relationship between you and Jesus. There's a similar mechanism going on there. All right, it's a parallel. David is the head of Christ. Christ is descended from David. He is of the Davidic line of kings. David is Christ's ancestor. Christ is taking on the Davidic kingship and the covenants that were given to David. Christ is also your head through the gospel. When you are united to Christ, he becomes your head. What do I mean by head? I mean like he's the head of your household. You can think of it like Ephesians 5 in the marriage metaphor, that Christ is the head of the church. You could think of it like a father and child relationship where the father represents the child. You know, if the child does something illegal under the age of 18, the father can be held legally responsible for it. There's a representative relationship there. It's sort of like a lawyer representing a client, except it's permanent. Now, David was promised that a descendant of his would be on the throne forever, and the Jews thought that that meant forever, starting with David and sort of regardless of what David or his descendants ever did. But that's not actually how it was worded. So they were understandably confused when David's line did not reign past a few generations. But the promise was not, David will have a king on the throne forever no matter what happens. It was if he is faithful. The promise is that David will reign forever if the king remains faithful. The covenant contained explicit stipulations that if David's descendants were unfaithful, the kingdom would be taken away from them, and it was literally his grandson did not reign. So the problem with the Davidic covenant, what went wrong with the promise God made to David is that the faithful kings would die and be replaced by unfaithful kings. That's what went wrong. So the logical solution to that problem is you need a king who will be faithful and will not ever die. You need a king who will be after God's own heart and accomplish God's will in his generation, but will never stop living. And that's why God made this promise, you will not let your Holy One see corruption, or as the NIV translates it, you will not let your Holy One see decay. Decay meaning either moral or physical or spiritual decay or corruption. This promise that you will not let your Holy One see corruption is the solution to the problem with the Davidic covenant. Jesus fulfilled that promise. 
Jesus was the Holy One who did not see decay. David died and was buried, so it couldn't have been him. Solomon died and was buried, couldn't have been him either. Solomon's children didn't reign, couldn't have been them. The kingdom has not been united. The Gentiles are not being reached. The king on the throne is not spreading the gospel. The covenant hasn't been accomplished. We have not seen the Holy One yet. But then Christ comes and his body did not decay. He died, but he was raised, and that same body that was in the ground walked out. Nor was he ever unfaithful even for a moment. So he is the proper recipient of David's covenant and the rightful king of Israel. But do you know what being a king makes you? It makes you a representative. Just like a father. So if Christ is your king, he represents you just like your father represents you when you're a child. In fact, kings were often called father in the ancient world because the relationship worked the same. Everyone sort of understood that kingship is like a heightened form of fathership over an entire nation. That's why there are kingly aspects when Jesus says, pray our father, He's talking about bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth, accomplishing the original purpose. But there's actually even more going on here than just the kingship, because Jesus is not just your king, he's your brother. The gospel doesn't just give you a passport for the kingdom of heaven, it gives you a birth certificate for the family of God. Something more happens. Christ has been made like you in every way, according to Hebrews 2.14, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, as Romans 8.29 says. So as Christ is in the family of David, so you are now in the family of Christ. Specifically, you are a brother and a co-heir with Christ. So everything that Christ inherits, everything that Christ is going to get and receive as his right of sonship, you also get and receive because you are united to him. That's how the gospel works. These promises belong to you in Christ. And in our text today, when it quotes, when Paul specifically quotes Psalm 2-7, saying, you are my son, today I have begotten you. It's not saying that Jesus was born today. Jesus is eternally begotten of the Father. That's why I I actually like how the NIV translates it, today I have become your Father. What it means is, today I have recognized you as my heir. Psalm 2-7, before it was applied to Jesus, was originally written down by David. It was David remembering the covenant that God made to him in 2 Samuel 7. When God said to David... I will be to you a father and you shall be to me a son. That's what God said. That's the covenant with David. I will be to you a father, you will be to me a son. David wrote down in Psalm 2-7, talking about that moment, he said, the Lord said to me, today I have become your father. And now Paul is taking that quotation and he is applying it to Jesus. And he's saying that the day that Jesus was totally shown to be without decay. The day he was demonstrated to be the Holy One who could not be killed because he deserved not, he did not deserve punishment, who did not decay because his body was raised, this Holy One of Israel is the rightful recipient of the Davidic covenant. Today, I have become your father. So Paul is saying that Christ is the rightful recipient 
of David's kingship. It is God recognizing Christ as the rightful king over Israel. Now, all of this is a lot of complicated Old Testament biblical theology and federal headship theology and historical narrative. What does it mean for us? Why do you need to know that Jesus is the rightful recipient of the Davidic kingship? Well, because if you believe in Christ and if you are united to Christ, then you are made co-heirs of this same promise with Christ. That means some very significant things for you. First off, it means, according to 2 Timothy 2.12, that if you suffer with Christ, you will reign with Christ. We will participate in his reign over all of the cosmos as we bring his salvation to the ends of the earth. That is not insignificant. That's not a small thing. But more immediately relevant for you and me today, perhaps more helpful, the application is exactly what Paul says in Acts 13, 38. Right after recognizing that Jesus is the proper heir of the Davidic kingship, Paul says this means forgiveness of sins for you. Why? Well, look back at God's covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7, 14. I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. We've already read that. When he sins... I will discipline him with the rod of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. If this promise becomes yours in Christ, then God is your Father, and even when you sin, even when he disciplines you, his steadfast love will never depart from you. Some of you may be under the discipline of God right now. And it might hurt. Some of you might feel the rod on your backs. And it might be hard. But if this promise belongs to you, if you will take this as yours, you can be certain of what Paul in our passage calls the sure promise of God to David, your father, that the father's steadfast love will never depart from you. If you need any more convincing of this, then go home this afternoon and read Hebrews 12. God only disciplines sons that he loves. What I'm saying is that your discipline is not your disqualification from God's love. It is your distinction as being the recipient of God's love. Discipline does not disqualify you from being loved by God. It marks you out as the person that God loves. Think about it this way. In a few minutes, the service is going to be over, and a couple of things are probably going to happen. First off, I'm probably going to meet some new people because we're growing right now, and it seems like every week I meet someone new, and that's wonderful. The second thing that's going to happen, though, is that Grace Kids are going to be let out, and kids are going to flood this room. Two of them will be mine. They will run through those doors, screaming and carrying on and being adorable and knocking over stuff, and it'll be a little chaotic. So let's just imagine then that you and I are meeting for the first time this week, and a band of rebel kids storms the stage, and they begin to knock over instruments and music stands and microphones and stuff. How do you know which kids are mine? It's the ones I'm threatening. Very easy to tell. 
There might be other kids on the stage doing wrong, but I, I don't see those kids. Those kids are invisible to me. It's my kids. Matt Kenyon sees those kids, by the way. They're not safe. But I don't see them. I'm not no snitch. I have not seen anything. But if you're my kid, you bet I saw that because I've got eyes in the back of my head for you. At least that's what I want them to think. But the thing is, even if they continue to flagrantly and willfully disobey, which they do from time to time, and even if they bring those threats on themselves that I mentioned, after the discipline comes, they know to ask for my forgiveness, and I'll give it to them. And then I'll remind them that I love them. And they'll grow just a little bit from the experience. And you, having never met my kids before, having never been introduced to them, you will know which ones belong to me. Discipline is distinct from punishment because discipline is restorative and punishment is retributive. Punishment gives you what you deserve regardless of whether you can survive it. It does not carry a promise of improving you. Discipline not only restores you to what you were, it makes you a little bit better every time. And for this reason, discipline is not incompatible with forgiveness. So I can forgive my children, really, truly, and still discipline them. I can forgive my children, really and truly love them, and still discipline them, because disciplining is wanting the best for them. It is an act of mercy and love in and of itself, even though it hurts. Punishment's not like that. You see, all the children of men all around the world sin all day long, and they think they get away with it. They see no discipline. They feel no conviction. They have no spiritual consequences. And the Bible says they are storing up wrath for themselves on the day of judgment because one day punishment is coming. And when punishment comes, it will be too late for forgiveness. But not yet. Through Jesus Christ, forgiveness can be yours. As our text says, through everyone who believes in him, is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Or as the ESV says, freed from everything which the law of Moses could not free you from. Being united to Christ means that the distinguishing discipline of sonship and all of its restorative purposes can belong to you. And it can mark you as a son and an heir with Christ and a recipient of the love of the Father. You Gentiles who fear God. You sinners who are being disciplined, you are not second class in the family of Christ. You are not the backup plan or the consolation prize. You are not the family shame. You are beloved, full-blooded sons and daughters, heirs of the king. Now finally, these promises were made to our fathers and to our king, but they are offered to our world. A part of how you can know 
that you have understood the value of this gospel is by judging the effect that it produces on your heart. The Gentiles in the crowd at the synagogue heard this message and they were glad. It says, they rejoiced and honored the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Now this is a message worth being glad over and not just a little glad either. I mean, can you imagine what it was like for them, these faithful Gentiles who'd been worshiping in a Jewish community for years and had been second-class citizens for years hearing the law and the prophets read stories about people who were not their fathers, stories about promises that did not belong to them. They were just playing dress up every week. And here comes Paul, the Hebrew of Hebrews, making a very convincing argument that these promises were meant for them. Not just that they could work to earn them, but that they actually were meant for them all along. That they could really belong, that God really wants them there, that he's really going to give them every right and privilege in their family that every other Jew they know had. Not only feeling like an imposter, not only feeling like you could at least belong there, but feeling that you're wanted there. Of course it made them glad. They had feared God from a distance from a long time, and now they were being invited to know him personally. We don't have to wonder what sort of effect that had on them. A week after Paul and Barnabas first preached to the Jews and the Gentiles in the synagogue, the very next Sabbath it says... Almost the whole city came to hear. You know how that happened? It was not a Jewish city. The city was majority Gentile by far. The Jews were actually a small um, exile colony. It was a small refugee community. This was a Greek city. The likelihood is that all of those Gentiles that showed up the next week heard about it from their Gentile friends who were there the first week and realized what was being offered to them. Now, it's possibly a slight exaggeration to say that the whole city showed up the next week, but if even a fraction of the one to 500,000 people in Antioch showed up in that little synagogue the next week, they were lacking for space. There's about 131,000 people in the Maitland, Altamont Springs, Winter Park, and Oviedo areas combined. And there are more of you in this room, very likely, than there were Gentiles in that Jewish synagogue the first week. Y'all have until next week to bring them all here. (laughs) We'll find some chairs. The good news is that the same promises of God that you have found, the same promises of God that are being offered to you, are offered to the people that you come from, to the people that you live among, to your world, to people just like you, who sin just like you and were lost just like you were. It's not a message to the qualified. It is an open invitation and a miracle that is available to anyone. However, this invitation does come with a warning. Right there in verse 40, Paul quotes from the Old Testament and he says, look, you scoffers, wonder and perish for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe even if someone told it to you. And Paul says, take care that this warning does not happen to you. So really there are two primary groups of people in the text today and it's actually not Jews and Gentiles. Not mainly. It's people who are appointed to believe and scoffers. 
That's the main people, the main distinction in view here. Those who were appointed to eternal life and those who scoffed and would not believe what was told to them. So if you hear the good news of the love of God the Father that is offered to you here and the full sonship that's offered to you and it doesn't draw you to the king and you walk home returning to your sin, scoffing at discipline and comforting yourself with how implausible it all sounds, with how foreign and strange it all sounds, with how unlike what you're used to it all sounds, you're in danger. But if you hear this gospel, and you long for the sonship that's offered to you, it can be yours right now. And you need to know that from the beginning, God has been calling you to himself and working everything together for your good, and you are wanted at his table. That's what we're going to do together in a minute. We're going to have a family meal. And all of us are going to come to a table we belong at. You can belong at this table just as much as anyone else here if you will just take hold of Christ. You have heard the news, now believe. And once you have believed, go tell somebody about it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the work that you have done through Christ that we don't deserve. And Holy Spirit, we need you to remind our hearts and to apply this doctrine to our hearts so that we can know and we can feel and we can see and experience what it is to be sons of God and to belong to each other and to you. So I pray that you would continue to shape us into the image of Christ, that we might be more united to him, that we might possess him more closely and see him more clearly until one day we see him exactly as he is and there is nothing in between us anymore. We pray that before that time happens, however, that you would bring your salvation to the ends of the earth and that you would use us in whatever way you see fit to accomplish that. We ask these things for the sake of Christ's kingdom and in his name, amen.